Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that at this time as we center our hearts, as we try to focus our thoughts, we ask that you would clear away the distractions that may come up, that may compete for our attention, and we ask that we be drawn like a moth to the flame. We be drawn to your spirit and your word and the movement of your spirit and word on our hearts. Lord, we ask that as these words are read, as the scripture is read, that it will leap off the page for us today and into our hearts. That what is written here will make its way into our hearts, that it will convict us, that it will uh, bring truth forth in us, and that it will lead us to a time of time of confession and a time of repentance and a time of restoration and a time of reveling and marveling in your grace. We pray all these things in the name of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand if you are able for the reading of the word. Our scripture comes today from 2 Samuel chapter 12 verses 1 through 13. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of his son, of this son, For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the Son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
Uh, as I said at the beginning of the series, one of the, the problems with doing something um, with, with David, with doing a series on David, is you never feel like you have uh, enough time. Uh, you can spend weeks and weeks and weeks on the life of David, but there will always be things that you miss. Uh, David is someone who was spoke of, spoken of uh, more in Scripture than Jesus himself. Uh, so there is a lot of stuff that could be said or preached about David, and instead we just kind of have to hit the, the big points and, and fill in the blanks from there. So having said that, let me catch you up to speed on what has been going on with David. If you were here last week, you remember Saul was chasing him, and, uh, and David had a chance to kill Saul. And he didn't. He surrendered the moment to God. And he said, I'm not going to raise my hand up against the person that God has appointed to be the king of, of Israel, even, um, even if it would be to my advantage to do so. And so David didn't. Well, sometime after that, Saul and his sons were killed in battle. And so David is free from that. David grieved over Saul and over the, the death of Saul and his sons. Uh, but, but David was now free from Saul. And as we know, David was uh, anointed to be the next king of Israel. So, uh, so David now took the throne, although he didn't take it all at once. He took the throne of Judah. And then Saul's only remaining son, his youngest son, took uh, the throne of Israel. It, it was divided. And, uh, and they were rivals for many years. Well, then Saul's son uh, wound up being assassinated by people within his own kingdom. And so in that moment, David took over the house of Israel as well, and David became the king over all of Judah and Israel. And, uh, and, and just as the Lord said he would. And as if this wasn't enough, David had experienced uh, many military defeats. He had defeated the, uh, the Hittites and the, the Ammonites and the, uh, and the Philistines. And uh, so David was, was experiencing a lot of success. He was also doing a lot for the Lord. He brought the ark into Jerusalem. And, uh, and so, so David was success, experiencing success on many, many levels. Things were going really well for him in these past several years. And he was, uh, he was very prosperous as a king. But then that's where the word of warning comes in. Because in prosperity, we must be careful. When things are going well, that's when we tend to lose focus. We tend to lose sight of what's really important. Because when things go well, we tend to search for fulfillment in other areas. Maybe we get bored. Maybe we get distracted. Maybe we get complacent or jaded. And we start chasing excitement in other areas that we normally wouldn't. Maybe we become distracted. Now, you might listen to this and say, well, David was a king. He was very prosperous. He had all these victories and he had all these riches and, and wives and, and just all this stuff. I don't have all that. So how could I possibly face that same temptation? How could I possibly become bored or distracted over uh, all my prosperity? But the truth is, all of us are prosperous in one way or another. All of us uh, are fortunate enough to live in a first world country. And by comparison, when you look at how people in other parts of the world live, we do live like royals. Uh, one of the 
more powerful uh, things that I've seen in a long time is uh, this, this thing that they did, uh, first world problems read by third world children. Have, have any of y'all seen that? It's, um, it's children who are, uh, you know, just, they, they look very malnourished, and they're from Africa and Asia and, and uh, parts of South America, and they're very poor. Um, their their clothes are torn. They have flies buzzing around their head. You can tell they haven't eaten much. And they've been given things to read that are um, complaints or gripes that first world people have. Uh, and so uh, one of those, um, somebody decided this would be a good idea to take these third world children and have them read first world problems. And it's heartbreaking to see. You see these, these poor kids, these malnourished kids, reading things like, I hate it when my iPhone cord is too short. Or, I can't stand it when my cell phone dies in the middle of a conversation. And you hear these complaints from first world people, but they're being said by, by kids who, who don't even know what any of that stuff means. They can't wrap their head around it. So all of us live in, the, in this in first world prosperity. And by comparison, we live as royals. And so we all face this same temptation that David had, that things, things are going well, things are going good. We, we might not always see the ways that we've been blessed. We might not always see what we have to be thankful for. But things are, 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 are really going well for anybody who, who lives in, in a first world nation by comparison. And so we have to be careful and we have to look at what David experienced, which is boredom which is uh, distraction, um, the chasing of fulfillment. The truth is we get too comfortable in this world. And when we get too comfortable, we lose the plot, meaning we don't understand exactly where we're going anymore or why we're doing what we do. When I was in high school, there was a Christian group called the Newsboys who, um, who had a song called Lost the Plot. And the, the words to them, I'm going to read them to you, are very powerful, very convicting, because it makes you realize just sort of the, the, uh, the mindset that we, we tend to get in. But it says, I heard a rumor that the end is near, but I just got comfortable here. Let's be blunt. I'm a little distracted. What do you want? Headaches and bad faith are all that I've got. I misplaced the ending, then I lost the plot. And, and the singer is, is talking to Jesus here, and, and at a moment, uh, he, he stops and he thinks about how wonderful that relationship was when he first entered, entered into it. And he says, when I saw you for the first time, you were hanging with a thief. I knew my hands were dirty, and I dropped my gaze. You said I was forgiven, and you welcomed me with laughter. I was happy ever after. I was counting the days when you'd come back again. Maybe we'll wake up when you come back again. Lies, let's be blunt, we're a little unfaithful, what do you want? Are you still listening? We're obviously not. We've forgotten our first love, we've lost the plot. And are you still calling? You forgave, we forgot. We're such experts at stalling that we lost the plot. And then the song ends with that opening line again. Heard a rumor that the end is near, but I just got comfortable here. Now, if we turn that inward and we look at ourselves, can we say the same about ourselves? Can we say that too often we have chased comfort? We have changed material 
joy, fulfillment. We have lusted after things that had nothing whatsoever to do with God. We made ourselves comfortable. And when we do that, that longing for comfort, that longing for fulfillment, it creates a perfect storm for temptation. And that's what happened to David. Lust was born in his heart. Now there's a reason Jesus said that whoever looks on another woman with lust has already committed adultery. It's because once that takes root in the heart, it just grows and it spreads and it can take over your mind to do all kinds of other things. And it doesn't have to be just just lust after another person. It could be lust after a thing. It can be greed. It can be, you name it. It could be uh, chasing uh, something at, at work, on the job, or whatever it could be. Something that you become obsessed with and it eats away at you from the inside. And it begins to take over your mind. That's what happened to David. He was on his roof one night. And he saw Bathsheba bathing. And he could have at that moment said, oh, I don't need to see that. And turned away and gone back in. And if he had, no sin would have been committed because there was no sin in being tempted. The sin was in allowing that temptation to, to enter the heart and become lust and to allow that lust to take root. And once David saw her, that's what he did. He longed for her. He lusted after her. And it drove him to the point where he said, I need to kill her husband so I can have her for myself. And he sent Uriah, one of his most loyal men, he sent Uriah to the front lines to die in battle so that he could take Uriah's wife as his own. Remember, David was chosen to be the king of Israel because of the condition of his heart. God saw his heart and said, that's my guy. That's the man who needs to be the king of Israel. He's got the heart that I need. But somewhere along the line over the years, David's heart condition had deteriorated. His heart became distracted. It became bored. I don't know. But we need to take note, whatever happened, because David went from having a heart that was completely for God and sold out to God to all of a sudden having a heart that allowed lust to come in and take root. And it turned him into an adulterer and a murderer. I don't want to gloss that over. It's a very, very terrible thing that David committed. There's two different tellings of David in the Bible. There's the first and second Samuel, and then there's also in, in Chronicles, first and second Chronicles, the life of David appears there. Chronicles was written during David's lifetime, and for some reason or another doesn't mention Bathsheba or Uriah at all in there. And we would call that probably political propaganda. Things that are written while somebody's in charge, they usually paint them in a better light. And if you read the life of David in Chronicles, it's glowing. David could do no wrong. But here in Samuel, we see this thing that happened. I had a professor at Emory that called this Bathsheba Gate. He said the, the politicians are good at covering up their scandals. This was Bathsheba Gate for David. And, and he, he obviously uh, had it covered up well you know, when he had his own historians writing the history of his life. But God was going to bring it to light eventually because it was such an important part of David's life and what happened. 
And so Nathan approaches him. And this is the scripture we read. David, uh, Nathan comes up to him and tells him this story about a man who had all these, this livestock, all these sheep. And he took the poor man's one, one lamb. And David was infuriated. And, and, uh, and Nathan said, that's you. That's what you've done. And God has seen it. And in that moment, David confesses and David repents. Now, as I told the kids and during the children's sermon, saying I'm sorry after you've been caught isn't always a sincere apology, is it? If you've ever had children, you know that. You know that sometimes kids only say I'm sorry because they got caught or because somebody's making them say it. But I don't think that's what happened here with David. Because he said, I've sinned against the Lord. And in that moment, there was deep sorrow. Because Nathan said, the Lord has forgiven you and you shall not die. Nathan, or God, spoke through Nathan because God knew that David's repentance was sincere. So the the title of this sermon is What David Did. And a lot of people want to talk about the bad thing that David did. And it was horrible. But what's really important here, what David did, is when he repented, when he turned from it. When, when, when you go into, uh, when you're part of Kairos and you go into the prisons and you talk to the, uh, the prisoners there, you're not allowed to ask them what they did to get there. I mean, you're there to present the gospel. You're there to present God's grace. So to go in there and say, well, what did you do? It would be terrible. It would go completely against the, the whole mission. Now, they can volunteer it if they want, but the idea is you go in there with the message of God's grace. God is extending his grace to you no matter what you've done. And so when we talk about what David did, it's important to remember what he did after he was confronted. This event could have ruined him spiritually, but his repentance was real and his relationship with God was eventually restored. And if you don't believe that, there are several psalms that testify to it. One of them is Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, it, it begins, it has, the, uh, it has the, the heading above it that says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. And in Psalm 51, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. And he goes on. But that doesn't sound like somebody who says, I'm sorry I got caught. That is someone who is truly, deeply sorrowful over what they have done. 
what they have done to others and what they have done to their relationship with God. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Do not hide from me. Do not take your spirit from me. David knew that the most important thing that he ever had going for him was God's grace, God's blessing. And he cried out to receive that grace once again. Now, there would be consequences. As Nathan said, the sword would never leave his house. There was always violence in David's house after that. Two of his sons died. Uh, Actually, three of them. The, The child that was born to Bathsheba died. Absalom died. Ammon died at the hand of Absalom. There was violence in his household for the rest of his life. There would always be consequences because David had let this darkness into his heart, into his family, and into his kingdom. But, as Nathan said, you are forgiven and you will not die. And God had mercy on him. God allowed him to keep the throne. God allowed him to keep the covenant that he had made with him. God allowed his son Solomon, who by the way was one of Bathsheba's sons, God allowed Solomon to take the throne after David. God's grace was still there. God's grace came back to David because David came back to God. David reminds us of God's grace at every turn of his story, from the beginning all the way to the end. We too live in the blessed shadow of God's grace. We recognize the ways he's blessed us, the way he's been merciful to us, the way he's provided for us. And of course, we'll do that this week, especially as we approach Thanksgiving Day. And hopefully we'll, we'll always be doing that. Thinking about the way that we live under the wings of his grace. Even when we stumble, even when we fail, even when we let our minds become warped and distracted, even when we become too comfortable, even when we lose the plot, become bored, even when we begin to lust and let those things take root in our heart, even when we allow the condition of our heart to be darkened and destroyed, God is willing to extend His grace to us when we truly repent. What David did with Bathsheba and to Uriah was a horrible thing, and it had severe consequences. But what he did once God confronted him was the most important thing. Has God confronted you about anything? Have you allowed yourself to become distracted or complacent, too comfortable? Have you allowed lust or greed or selfish desire to take root in your heart? Today is a time for us to weep over our sins, repent, turn back to God. God is gracious, God is loving, God is merciful. And He does not want your sin to define you. He longs for His grace to define you. Let us pray. Lord, we confess that there are so many times we have lost the plot. Where we have allowed ourselves to to wander, to drift. As the old song says, prone to wander, Lord... We feel it. But Lord, we ask that you confront us just as you did, David. That you show us where we've gone wrong and that you direct our hearts back to you. That we will truly repent. That we will truly turn our lives around. 
that we will truly face you once again. Our sins could define us, yes, Lord. But as long as we repent, as long as we cry out, blot out our iniquities, wash us whiter than snow, do not remove your Holy Spirit from us, as long as we cry this out just as David did, those things will not define us. Our sin will not define us. Your grace and your love will. We thank you for this. And we ask that you pour that love and grace out on each one of us today. We pray these things in the holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our hymn of invitation this morning is Just As I Am. That's hymn number 357 in the United Methodist Hymnal, the Red Hymnal. If you've made a decision of any type today, I invite you, I encourage you to come forward as we sing. The altar is always open for anyone who wishes to spend a few moments here. But please stand if you are able. We're going to sing the first, second, and last verse of hymn number 357.